Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode 16 of the Love Capades podcast. Last time, we heard a wild story about two German guys, a harrowing encounter with a former lover, and finally a hilarious saga about a love guru and a provocative personal ad that led to disappointment. Let's find out what Michelle's up to now. So this chapter is called The Land of Oz. I would have called this chapter Down Under, but that could be construed the wrong way. Couldn't resist that silly attempt at a pun. I have some big-time karma with Australia, having been there six times in this lifetime alone. My first foray to the land of Oz was in the late 60s while I worked at SRI International. We sponsored a conference in Sydney with support from our local office, and I was there for two weeks as part of the staff from headquarters. It was my first introduction to the attractive, fun-loving Aussies, who so often are an engaging combo of the best of the Brits and us Americans. Here's the recipe. Take the good manners and correctness of the British— and mix it with our Wild West individualism and penchant for fun, and you get the fabulous formula. While on that assignment, I met Trish Mappin, who worked for SRI Sydney. Over the next several decades, she and I became soul sisters and enjoyed many a good time romping around the globe together on various capers. In fact, it was Trish who would be with me many years later when I made a fascinating discovery about Nicola, my Sicilian doctor who had gone missing. To this day, the Mappin clan remains my family from another mother. The second time I landed down under, I was part of the traveling tennis team you've already heard about. I was lucky to be a member of this adventurous group of women, 20 of us or so, called WAIT, W-A-I-T, or Women's Amateur International Tennis. For the record, I always disliked the name because it reminded me of my issues with the other WAIT, W-E-I-G-H-T. That nonsense aside, the raison d'etre of our group was to travel internationally to play tennis at various venues and then to host that foreign group of women on our home turf. The concept was a smashing, another bad pun, success. Over the 10 years I belonged to the group, we did trips to Mexico twice, Toronto, Vancouver, Japan, and many places around the U.S., As you recall, I was rocket launched to Israel from one of these events in South Carolina. The exchanges were a week at a time, and we were always treated as royalty. Then we would reciprocate in the same lavish style. One of the best trips was arranged by the American ambassador to Australia at the time, Bill Lane, owner of Sunset Magazine, and his wife, Jean. 
as they were billeted in the capital city of Canberra, that is where our event took place. The usual format was for us to stay in pairs at the private home of one of the hostesses. This trip, Joan, my partner for the Oz outing, and I lucked out as we were assigned to Narelle and Ross Gibson, who lived in a fancy high-rise flat overlooking the entire city. Narelle was a bouncy, buxom blonde with turquoise blue eyes, married to the tall, elegant, white-haired Ross, who sported a boyish grin and personality to match. This turned out to be an auspicious pairing for me in particular, because a few years hence, I ended up spending a month at Christmas with the Gibsons at their country sheep station in tiny Bynalong. What a fairy tale that turned out to be. You'll hear more about that story soon. The tennis exchange was more fun than should be legal, but there were no love capades to speak of until Joan and I flew to Hong Kong at the end of the week. The Qantas flight we took was chock-a-block full of rowdy rugby fans from the South Pacific region, Oz, New Zealand, New Guinea, and some of the smaller islands all men, and all drunk by the time we landed in Hong Kong. Talk about getting attention. We must have been the only chickadees on board, so we became the focal point of much revved-up testosterone. To be honest, there was a lot of great-looking male material to choose from on that plane, so it became a kind of two-way drool-fest. Joan and I had booked rooms at the smashing Regent Hotel, which overlooked the dazzling Hong Kong Harbor. Once settled in, we wound our way to a neighboring hotel bar where we'd been invited to join the madcap gang from our flight. What an array of inebriated hunks, acting as if they'd finally been let out of mom's you were naughty time out. It reminded me of the movie Animal House. These guys, many former rugby players themselves, hadn't stopped drinking since they'd set foot on the airplane. The reason they'd all congregated for a week of certifiable madness was to attend the Hong Kong Sevens, the premier tournament for a kind of rugby called Seven Aside. It's a variation of regular rugby in which teams are made up of seven players playing seven-minute halves instead of the usual 15 players playing 40-minute halves. The tournament drew teams from all over the world. I had learned about rugby because my father played in his youth and used to brag about being coached by a man from the New Zealand's famous all-black team. Joan and I had intended to do lots of shopping and eating during our stay, which we managed to do, but the unexpected highlight of our detour en route home was attending this unique sporting event. Our newly acquired male buddies had given us tickets, so the next day we joined them at the stadium. I've attended many sporting events in my life, but nothing like this. Fans sat in sections, not to root for their favorite team, but rather according to their favorite beer. I'm not kidding. Small, agile Asian girls would wiggle their way into every aisle, carrying huge pitchers of that section's brand of beer, which sloshed ubiquitously, but mostly into large cups held by every man in the stands. The drinking continued unabated. 
I simply couldn't imagine how these blokes could hold so much alcohol and remain upright. This they managed, but executing other manly duties, like screwing, not so well. Over our first days in Hong Kong, we had become groupified by the rugby gang. I'd been matched up with the tribe leader, a ruggedly virile specimen from Papua New Guinea. (laughs) I'd never had a man from that neck of the woods, so it was kind of exciting. Not that I had ever set out to notch my non-chastity belt with lovers from every country on the planet, mind you. Wherever we went, Mr. PNG was by my side. So being a red-blooded American mama, it wasn't surprising that I expected to eventually have some quality bedtime with my guy. By the third night, the time had come to lure him back to my large and lovely suite at the hotel. I recall it had two walls of windows that looked out to the pulsing city of Hong Kong, a lovely city area with big ottomans, and of course, a big bed. It was late by this time, so I'm sure my seduction plan was obvious. Unfortunately, my macho companion was so soused that there was no way he was going to get his trigger cocked, or conversely, get his cock triggered. Either way, there was to be no hot sex that night, or any other night for that matter. Damn disappointing. I guess these former jocks preferred being booze sponges rather than getting some quality nookie. Luckily, there were other chances for romance in the Southern Hemisphere. I can't seem to avoid these bad puns. <laughs> About a year and a half after the Australian tennis exchange, I was invited to spend Christmas time down under. Over the course of a month, I spent a week in Sydney with Trish and her family, and another three weeks at Mylora, the utterly enchanting country home owned by the Gibsons. Let me tell you about Mylora, which I believe to be my favorite house of all time. And that is saying a lot, as I've been in the real estate business viewing gorgeous houses for more than four decades. The rambling one-story structure sat in the middle of three acres of gardens, which included flower beds, lawn for miles, and a red clay tennis court tucked in one corner. An especially memorable image is the corrugated tin roof, a quintessential architectural feature in many Aussie homes. The idea was to be able to capture rainwater that ran off the roofs for use in an arid outback. The floor plan was one that had grown organically over many years, driven by need for more space rather than by formal design. It was kind of hodgepodgey, but it worked. There was a huge open kitchen with windows which looked out at tall gum, otherwise known as eucalyptus trees, that housed the noisy cockatoos. A very large cooking island sat perpendicular to an ample eating nook. And don't forget the gigantic pantry, which I raided frequently, always full of tasty treats. Over numerous visits, I spent many blissful hours in that kitchen, cooking, eating, chatting, conjuring up capers with the Gibsons, just being there together, not having a care in the world. 
Being 7,500 miles from home helped to insulate me from the usual responsibilities and worries. And this was a time when cell phones and email couldn't reach out to wreak havoc with your contentment. Not far from the kitchen was a gigantic rectangular dining room where festive gatherings took place. The bold wallpaper evoked a tropical paradise with its giant leaves and bright blossoms splashed around the large space. In the center of the room stood a long wooden table that could seat 20 if needed. The Gibsons were only four, but their lifestyle included dozens of friends and other family. Because my Laura sat in the middle of a large sheep and cattle station, which had been in Narelle's family for ages, entertaining was never formal, just welcoming. I remember so fondly having Christmas dinner two years in a row at that hospitable dining table. One fun thing to note is that being in the Southern Hemisphere, holiday food is not a thing like ours in the States. Due to the very warm weather, the fare was typically cold cuts rather than hot turkey or prime rib, cold veggies and salads, and something special for dessert. Rather than fruitcake, there was the most delicious ice cream filled with candied fruit. I loved the stuff and often made sneak attacks into that big pantry, spoon in hand, to get more. Bynalong was a tiny dot on the map, northeast of Canberra, and home to large properties typical of the Australian outback. The owners who ranched these stations, as they are called, depended on one another and formed a magical social network, unlike any I've ever known. It reminded me some of the five families who were thick as thieves while I was growing up in Menlo Park. We spent holidays together, and throughout the year, the parents socialized, the kids played, all which created a charmed band of friends. What made the Bynalong gang even more special than ours was how big the network was, and how they had to count on one another for just about everything, because they were so far from civilization, literally out back. They were a privileged lot with interesting backgrounds. One headed up the Polo Federation in the country. Another was a British doctor who loved cars and had an actual car museum out in the bush with many classic cars on display. Others were smart, handsome ranchers married to lovely women raising attractive kids. The Gibsons lived part-time in Canberra and spent weekends and holidays in this Australian Camelot. During the Christmas season, each and every night, there was a party at one of the houses. In my experience, the Australians know how to party better than anyone on earth. All day, we would play tennis, then gussy up to attend that night's festivity. Being a fashionista, I'd stuffed my suitcases with any number of interesting get-ups with wild costume jewelry to match. My wardrobe intrigued the Aussies, so I became a sort of bell of the ball. I was, after all, someone new to get to know. It was exhilarating, actually. I reveled in being the center of attention. Yes, like you, Mom. The biggest soiree of the season was held at the Nuttall Spread. There must have been several dozen guests, 
lots of good food, lots of beer and wine, and lots of frivolity. It all took place outdoors on a large lawn with picnic tables strewn about. The guests played a kind of musical chairs, moving from one table to the next, mixing and matching, and all the while drinking a lot and laughing aloud into the sparkling night. The younger set kicked soccer balls and heaved rugby balls through the air, sneaking booze when their parents weren't looking. Midst the hubbub were numerous ranch pooches ranging about. By this time in my stay, I knew the cast of characters well, and especially appreciated that evening's host, the rugged but refined, ever-so-hunky Trevor Nuttall. I'd chosen to wear my gold lame slacks with a glittery gold cardigan, guaranteed to catch attention. Evidently, the get-up did his job. After hours of partying, it finally came time for the Gibson contingent to say our goodbyes and leave for my Laura. Then something happened which will ever be etched in my love journal. I was standing in the middle of the green lawn under a blanket of stars glimmering in the brilliant Land of Oz sky when Trevor approached me to say goodnight. Without a word, he leaned in and kissed me full on the lips. It was completely unexpected, yet perhaps the most erotic kiss I have ever had. It felt cosmic. I began to spin as if about to be propelled into space. Oh my, the power of that kiss. Nothing else developed between the two of us, but that kiss is forever embossed on my heart. It proves my belief that kissing can be the most sensual act of all. Not long after that cosmic kiss, another sexy thing happened. Stuart Sanders, the sophisticated British doctor married to one of the Binalong ladies, took a fancy to me. I had suspected as much because he found every opportunity to stare at me from across every room. But it became very clear the day we were having lunch, al fresco, with a group of friends at his home. Stuart and I were seated next to one another at a long picnic table when he turned toward me to whisper in my ear, I'd love to take you away for the weekend. Mind you, his wife was sitting at the other end of the table, so I found this quite bold, to say the least. Once again, I was put in that graceless position of choosing desire over propriety. I definitely would have enjoyed indulging in a love tryst with Stuart, a gorgeous man after all, but I was the guest of the entire community by that time, and I definitely didn't want to create a scandal and be run out of town on a bucking kangaroo. So I demurred. There is a juicy postscript to this intrigue, at least. The holiday party season culminated in a getaway over New Year's at Threadbow, the New South Wales' most popular ski resort located in the Snowy Mountains. The entire Binalong contingent all booked rooms in the Threadbow Alpine Hotel, then literally headed for the hills. 
The New Year's Eve affair held in a private room at the hotel was dinner at a long table that accommodated the entire mob. The celebration went on for hours and included massive amounts of alcohol, of course, and various silly parlor games. The best of these was a kissing game in which you bid for someone you wanted to kiss. Luckily, you were permitted to say yes or no to a successful bidder. It was no surprise that Stuart won the bid for me. When it came time for the kiss, he approached me, lifted me out of my chair, and planted the most delicious, eternally long smooch on my longing lips. It felt like an entire feast in one kiss, and it definitely meant he was staking his claim. Everyone in the room took notice especially Narelle, who later asked me about it. Oh, it was just done in a party spirit. No big deal, I said. But we both knew it was more than that. However, I stuck to my good girl conviction and never allowed myself to have a fling with Stuart. Wonder what would have happened if I had. Suffice it to say, my love capades in the Southern Hemisphere, with all of those hunks on hand, were more titillating than fulfilling in the sexual sense. I never got it on with any of them, not one. There were, however, some very special moments which I hold with great affection. Desire is a potent emotion, even when it remains unrequited. I'd like to tuck in a small but fond memory before moving on to juicier tales. In the late 1990s, I had yet another rendezvous in Florence and environs organized by the former director of the Stanford in Italy program, Dottore Giuseppe Mamarella. I was to meet my intrepid friend from Sydney, Trish Mappen, for more of our usual antics. En route, I stopped in Milano for a few days to shop in the fashion boutiques, and more importantly, to see Da Vinci's The Last Supper. While there, I booked a table at Rigolo, a restaurant frequented by the journalist-writer-artist crowd. Its walls were covered with paintings, posters, plaques, and autographed photos of famous Italian authors. A group of adjoining rooms with arched ceilings and white-clothed tables, along with the framed artwork, made for a cozy osteria oozing in ambiance. But the best part was the drop-dead gorgeous man sitting at a table across the room from me, facing in my direction. What made him a magnet for the eyeballs was his wavy dark hair, tall, slender physique, enhanced by a tailor-made suit, and magnetic smile. I couldn't stop stealing peaks between bites of my tasty lunch. Don't ask me what I ate, however, as I only had taste buds for this tall, handsome Romeo. Oh, did I mention that he was dining with an equally attractive woman who looked to be a model? Toward the end of my meal, I needed to use the ladies' room, which happened to be conveniently located in an alcove just beyond where Il Bello was seated. Very deliberately, I walked past him and made a point of catching his eye. He was even more delectable up close. I could see in his eyes a keen alertness, 
and how sinewy his body was under that finely cut suit. Upon returning to my table, I signaled the waiter for my conto, or check, and pulled the business card out of my pocketbook. Upon it, I wrote in my best Italian that I would welcome a call from the gentleman and the phone number to find me. I handed that to the waiter and asked him to deliver it once I'd left the restaurant. Si, signora, he said with a knowing wink. Italians, ever the romantics. Later that evening, while in my hotel room, the phone rang, and in perfect English, the voice said, You were at Rigolo today, right? It turns out Mr. Hottie wasn't Italian at all, but German and a Formula One race driver. He'd been in Milano for a race at Monza's famous Grand Prix racetrack and had already left town heading to Monte Carlo for his next event. He suggested we meet somewhere along his trail, but that wasn't in the stars. I was committed to meeting Trish the Dish in Florence for our next adventure. So, sadly, the German and Mish the Dish remained two race cars going in opposite directions. But wasn't it just the bomb that he called me anyway? Who knows what would have happened had he still been in Milano? I'm quite sure I would have said yes to a few lusty nights of him revving my engines. Michelle, this Down Under (laughs) episode has quite a lot of titillating stuff going on. Oh, my goodness. So you certainly do have a karmic connection with Australia, don't you? I would say that is a definite yes, although I've never discovered any specific past lifetimes. But there's definitely karma there. But also this amazing connection you have with Trish, who you describe as family from a second mama. Yeah. Trish Mappin and I were definitely soul sisters. And of course, I love our twin nicknames, Mish the Dish and Trish the Dish. (laughs) I never thought of that. It's great. So I met Trish on my first trip to Australia. And we kept in touch by Christmas cards over the years. And then when I went back for the second time, I'll never forget, she picked me up at the airport with her daughter, whose name, by the way, is Nicola. Mm, Wow. Go figure. And she took me to this place, this very romantic place on a point overlooking the harbor with a basket of champagne and treats. She was kind of a great cook. And so the four of us, I was with Joan, of course, my partner, we sat there and this is after I hadn't seen her for, I think, 17 or 18 years. And then our escapades continued from that time forward. So what is it about the Alces that you love so much? It kind of meets your love of life. And what do you call it? Your search for fun? <laughs> well, I have this bigger than life sort of attitude and I have a lot of joie de vivre and I I call myself a fun hog. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a fun hog. So the Aussies are just the perfect foil for that. They are more fun than anybody I've ever met. Right. So it really meets your fun quota. (laughs) It does. It meets my fun quotient. Yeah. (laughs) That's wonderful. So I love that when you travel back the second time with 
Joan, I think, was your partner, and you met up with this family called the Gibsons. They, too, became almost like a karmic connection, no? They were also like family, and this went on for a period of time. So I had Trish and her family, and now I had the Gibsons. So again, it was this immensely delightful connection that I had in Australia. It was just too bad it was so darn far away. But I did get to go back and spend two Christmases with the Gibsons. Yeah. So I'm going to put a hold to asking you a question about that a little bit later, if that's okay, because I want to get to the rugby hunks (laughs) on your your flight to Hong Kong. I mean, speaking of your fun quota, oh, my God. So let me ask you something, though. You weren't turned off to their drinking. It was all in good fun. Well, all right. Just imagine this. You're on a Qantas flight from Sydney to Hong Kong. And 95% of the bodies on the plane are hunks. (laughs) Now, they were drinking up a storm, but who cared? I mean, it was like so amazing to be amongst all this testosterone. And of course, Joan is a beautiful woman. And here I was, my honey bunny self. And (laughs) the guys were going bananas, berserk. (laughs) So it was just so damn fun. And who cared if they were drinking too much? Well, after the flight, there was more fun to come because you guys went to the hotel. You, I think you told us, you know, it was a beautiful hotel overlooking the beautiful waterway. And then you went off to meet them. And then you were paired with a chief, I think you called him, head of the tribe. <laughs> he was a, a hunky guy from Papua New Guinea. And he was a rugby player. He was Caucasian. He wasn't, you know, an Aborigine or anything. But he was sort of the head guy. And so he and I ended up together. Right. For the duration of the week. And I mean, that description is so insane of going to the tournament and how the tiers were divided up. That You said it wasn't by team. Oh, my God. It was all about beer. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, we went to this special rugby tournament, which is the reason all these guys had flown to Hong Kong in the first place. And I'm used to going to sporting events. I'm a real sports fan. and But this was beyond unusual. The entire stadium was broken up into sections by the beer you liked. It was crazy. And so these guys all had a big cup that was constantly filled by these little petite Asian girls who could wiggle their way through all the aisles. And they were carrying these giant pitchers. So the cups that the guys had were never empty. And they kept drinking and drinking and drinking. It was wild. It was wild. And then, of course, you're matched with this guy and you lure him back to your hotel. In this case, different from some of the other episodes, you were the seducer this time. You're the one luring him back. You're not waiting for him to invite you, right? Well, let's face it. We ladies are not immune to virility and (laughs) lots of testosterone. And so I'd been experiencing this for days by that time. And I thought, well, it's time to get it on. So (laughs) I lured him back to my beautiful hotel room in the Regent Hotel. And here we were. And he just was too pickled to perform. And (laughs) what can I do? I tried, but no luck. No luck. Nice girls always try. (laughs) Anyway, back to the Gibsons and that incredible story of 
being invited to Christmas at their country home, and your description of the home is so beautiful and sensuous and tropical and heated and steamy. And the steamy things that happened were not sexual, but they were erotic, so erotic. Well, there were lots of things that happened over the course of more than one year. I just want to stop and sort of insert again how special that house was, my Laura. And I was blessed to be able to stay there on on several occasions. And at that point in time, it felt like the dreamiest place on earth. And it was an interesting house. It wasn't designed by an architect. It was just this magic place. And of all the beautiful homes that I have been in, being in the real estate business for 40-some years, that home captured my imagination more than any home I've ever been in. But isn't it fair to say it was also your experiences there, so warm and welcoming and jovial, and you sound like you felt so in your own element without judgment you would even sneak into and raid the good foods in the pantry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was just, again, it was like unfettered, unadulterated, nonstop, joyful, playful fun. And these were fun-loving people. They were interesting, bright people. They lived in a fascinating bubble out there in the outback. But they were this, as I said, a magical network of people. And I got to experience all of them. And they became instant friends. And I was the belle of the ball. I mean, it was delicious. It was delicious. Well, I love the the night where you truly are the bell of the ball and you were wearing the gold lame pants with the gold jacket. And can I just ask you, would you have done that? Would you have worn that getup at a party in the States or was part of it that you were far away and you did it all out? <laughs> well, I might have worn the outfit to a party here, but I would never have felt always the bell of the ball as I was in that setting. And I was just uninhibited. Again, you know, you might recall how uninhibited I described my experiences in Italy. Here I was 7,500 miles from home in a place which was welcoming and delightful. So naturally, I felt free. I felt free to be me. Yeah, just lovely. And the biggest dessert of all was that cosmic... Trevor kiss, no? (laughs) I will never forget that kiss. And as a matter of fact, Sally, for a writing class I took once, I wrote a 20-page story called Kissed at Christmas. So it made a very lasting impression on me. And as I recall it to this day, there was something in that kiss that is hard to describe. And imagine the setting. It was a beautiful Christmas time evening in Australia. And that, of course, is their summer. And the stars that you can see in that sky, because there's no pollution, especially out in the outback. And here we were under this blanket of stars in the middle of this large lawn space. And the host of the evening, who was literally beautiful to look at, and very masculine. He was a rancher and whatever. He had a lovely wife, by the way. So he comes up to me to say goodbye, I thought. But instead of saying anything, 
he leaned down and kissed me so beautifully and erotically on my lips. Oh, hubba hubba. Hubba hubba. Hubba hubba. But you've also reminded us that you're a good kisser. You love kissing. And here's one of those stories where it's so erotic, even though you never took it all the way in a sexual way with him, right? Right. So I guess it's, as I say, kissing to me can be the most sensual of all things. And apart from going all the way, (laughs) getting it on, there can be something totally sexual in just the kiss. And it can be sufficient in its own right. Just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's like (laughs) you don't have to have intercourse to enjoy the sensual act of sex. And also, you don't have to connect only through sex. I mean, here's a deep erotic connection without taking it all the way. It's just really wonderful. Cosmic, as you said. (laughs) Yeah, it was cosmic. So then here's another married man that you meet there, Stuart. Oh, dear. Oh, my goodness. Well, Stuart was really a fascinating man. He had met his bind-along wife when they were on a cruise one time. And he was from England, and he was an MD. And they married and had a life in the outback, (laughs) a million miles from London. And he was a car buff. And so he started a car museum out in Nowheresville. So he was a very interesting man. So he obviously liked me because I, I could feel, I could sense it. And then he put his money where his mouth was. Oh my God. <laughs> or his mouth where his money Yeah, was. right. But we're having lunch at his house and we're sitting at this long picnic table, several of us, and I'm at one end and I'm literally kitty corner, kitty wampus from his wife who's on the other side of the table. And he's sitting next to me and he leans in and says, I'd like to take you away for the weekend. Oh, my. I mean, his wife is across the table. And whereas I was very tempted because he was a gorgeous, elegant man, and I wanted to say yes, but I also realized that I was this bell of the ball of the community. And if I had an affair with him, first of all, I couldn't figure out how he'd pull it off. But second of all, I thought, I'm going to, be run out of town, run out of Dodge. <laughs> well, you'd, you'd certainly never be invited back, right? Well, so, right. It was like, what was I to do? Right. But I love the parlor game that he does at least get to kiss you. But the thing I wanted to ask you about is you said that it was maybe one of those denouement moments that you regret you didn't carry through. Is that fair to say? Or You're right to ask the question. So, at this point in my life, when I look back on these opportunities, shall we say, where I have to make a choice. I mean, for instance, back to Xander when he came to invite me to have an affair with him and I said no. Here was this opportunity with Stuart. And I said no for very reasonable reasons. But if you asked me today, did I make the right decision? I would have to say no. I would say, I wish I had gone for it in both of those cases. So what does that say to me? It says, gee, you should follow your heart. 
but it's it's a tough one because I also didn't want to be persona non grata in that fabulous community that I had been lucky enough to be a part of. Well, also, as a storyteller, it becomes this incredibly erotic, titillating episode where you're just waiting for something to happen, and it does, but not quite. (laughs) It works for a good story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so we're looking now 30 years ago, let's say, and I'm still thinking about Stuart and what it would have been like and saying to myself, gee, Michelle, you should have gone for it. Michelle, oh my God, that story about you in the restaurant in Milan with yet another German gentleman, it turns out. What led you to be so bold? You left him a business card. I mean, I I just don't know if I'd ever have the nerve. (laughs) What led you to do that? Well, as you know, I am kind of bold. (laughs) And here I was for a few days alone in Milano having a lovely lunch at this gorgeous place. And right across the room was this hunk. I mean, he was stunning. And I couldn't stop looking at him. And then I walked by him and it was even hotter up close. (laughs) So I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could connect with him somehow. (laughs) Oh my God, you are so bold. I am. So I wrote this note and made the waiter to be an accomplice. And he he loved it, of course. He's Italian. So he winked at me and he (laughs) kept the card. I left the restaurant and it worked because obviously the waiter took the card over there. And then a guy called me. Oh, hubba. (laughs) But we never got together because he was already on his way for the next car race. Still just an amazing. You're so brave. You're so brave. (laughs) Well, I can be. Brave, and I can also be a little pussycat. (laughs) Well, you took a risk. I did. No risk, no gain. You did. So there was a story about Last Supper I know you wanted to tell us. You mentioned it. Okay, so that's a typical Michelle story. So here I check in for these three days ahead of my trip to Florence to meet Trish. And I was staying at the Four Seasons, of course, typical me. I have to stay at the best hotel. And so I checked with the concierge. I said, I'd like to see the Last Supper. He said, well, you have to get tickets. And I'm sorry, but you're too little too late. You can't get a ticket now. Well, do you think that stopped me? (laughs) No, no, no. So I go to the church where the Last Supper is, and there was a line curling around the piazza of people who had tickets. But I got at the end of the line, and everybody was let in for their viewing of the Last Supper. And somehow, by hook or by crook, because I'd been standing in that line all that time, they let me in. And I got to see the painting, which was really important to me, because when I had been an undergraduate at Stanford in Italy and Florence, my dissertation, the paper I had to write, was about Leonardo. And I really, really wanted to see that painting. So my chutzpah won the day and I got to see the painting. It's amazing. So just to wrap up this episode, I have to point out that more than once in what we listened to today, it was like there was the possibility of love, that, but it never quite came to fruition. A lot of titillating, a lot of flirtation, a lot of kissing. So how do you feel about that? You know, that's really a lovely question, Sally. And 
when I think back on this episode, whether it was the race driver or the gorgeous doctor in Australia, Stuart, or even the gorgeous rancher, Mr. Nuthall, and the fantastic kiss at Christmas, all of those things were possibilities, as you put it, that didn't really go very far for whatever set of reasons. And yet, they are some of the most delicious love capade moments of my life and clearly made such an impression that I shared them in the memoir. And I think it's a great question. You don't have to have a long-term relationship with someone. You don't have to go to bed with them. You can have these delicious interludes and they can populate your life in a beautiful way. And so I cherish them. I mean, what it makes me think of is it's that that age old, that titillation sometimes can be more erotic than the final act. But also just desire in itself is so powerful, isn't it? It is. To desire and to be desired, that's really a lovely thing. Well, thank you for bringing that to life for us again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's so much fun for me to revisit all of these things. They're titillating all over again. <laughs> I can't wait to hear more, Michelle. <laughs> well, there's a little more to come. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by Studio Pod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com. dot com.